I revere dance over uh, over more, more art forms. I, I watch a lot of dance. I study a lot of dance because the body never lies, really. And so it's like it's when we can see the body in space and what stories the body can't tell or what specific things the body can't say. I mean, a hunched over back and hands in the face more often than not mean grief. And then what kind of grief is happening is what the words do. They, they specify and narrow down. And that, to me, is, is interesting theater, is when the emotion or when the need of every aspect is used to make more specific the feeling. Um, and by making things more specific, we also make things more universal. That's how I like to work. I like to work in that way. I like to work in a way that will make people think, I can't do this at home. I can't sit home at, at, and watch this on television. I have to be in the live space and listen to see this piece happening in front of me. That's playwright and 2013 MacArthur Fellow, Terrell Alvin McCraney. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced by the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm the host and producer, Josephine Reed. In late September, the MacArthur Foundation named the 2013 recipients of their Genius Award. One of the 24 MacArthur Fellows was playwright Terrell Alvin McCraney. At 32, McCraney has produced a strong body of work that uses mythological themes and religious imagery to explore African-American lives with great compassion. His best-known work is the one that put him on the theatrical map when he was in his 20s, The Brother-Sister Plays, a trilogy set in a housing project in Louisiana in what McCraney calls the distant present. In these plays, McCraney explores coming-of-age, family, and community through the lens of West African mythology with a raw and poetic street language and a meta-theatricality. The first of the trilogy, The Brother's Size, is a taut three-person play about brotherhood. The second, In the Red and Brown Water, tells the story of an African-American teenager who postpones a university athletic scholarship to take care of her sick mother. The final play in the trilogy, Marcus, or The Success of Sweet, follows a young black man's search for his sexual and personal identity. In 2009, Princeton's McCarter Theater presented McCraney's trilogy, giving Marcus its world premiere. We were lucky enough to sit in on a rehearsal for Marcus and speak with Terrell McCraney. Over the years, we've played a couple of clips from that interview, but now seemed like a good time to hear it in its entirety. Terrell and I began our conversation, naturally enough, with the business at hand, the world premiere of his play, Marcus, or The Success of Sweet. You know, Marcus was the ugly duckling for a while. <laughs> it just sort of got on nerves, and I was just like, because I, I guess I had a hard time at first allowing it to be as funny as it is. That play is so funny. I heard you laughing in the rehearsals it's yesterday. It's so funny to me, and I keep trying not to because I'm like, I know somebody, some critics gonna come to the theater and be like, sitting behind me during the opening or something, and be like, why does he think his own play is so funny? And then of course, my answer to them would always be, well, it wasn't funny to me. Why would I write it? But it's incredibly funny about a very serious topic, and I think that was hard for me. That was hard for me to get over the fact that this was extremely funny. It was coming out in this very funny way. It was coming out in this very sort of, um, if I would have to put it into a category, it's definitely one of the one of the romantic plays because it, it's all over the place. It's got a lot of passion in it. It's really funny. It's sometimes really sad, sometimes heartbreaking, but it world, it's sweet. It's sweet, yeah. Marcus is really sweet. and. 
I had a problem writing a sweet story at first because I was like, well, people are going to think I'm softening up and I'm not writing these sort of hard-headed Greek kind of African stories that burst open and are terribly tragic but also very strong-willed and uh, percussive. And it's like, sometimes it's all right to write, to write the flu arpeggio. You know what I mean? It's all right to do the, <laughs> it's all right to do the pizzicato piece. It's okay. And so... Once I got over that, I, I really just love it. It's such a little little gem of a play, and it's so fast and so sweet and so pretty. And You know, you hate the pretty girls in school. <laughs> kind of grow, grow to love them when you realize, you know, they can't help being pretty. <laughs> and so, Marcus, you can't, you can't help but be pretty. And it's charming, and it charm, it'll charm the hell out of you. And So I'm happy to see it on stage. I'm also really excited that it also has come with a lot of other work about gay black life. Because that was one of the struggles that I had, which is that, you know, writing a play about gay black life, I certainly don't want to make it appear like it's all roses. And Marcus doesn't do that. Marcus certainly has some very dangerous, dark places that it goes. But I, I also didn't want it to seem not gritty. But then I've written two or three other plays that sort of complement that. So that, for me, is important. And then we've got to continue to write plays that are black, gay, stories because they're not enough and I'll continue to write them you know at, at first I think I was a little hesitant about that beat. but when I look in the paper and, and I see you know there are two boys of color both only about 11 who hung themselves because they were being tormented at school for being gay within a month's time away from each other mm-hmm. you know what I mean and and miles and miles apart so it's not a southern thing it's not a northern thing it's something that's happening and whether or not these um, boys were homosexual or not. That's what they were being jeered for. And that's what ultimately drove them to their end. So those stories need to, be, need to continue to be told. They're important stories because they're American stories. And the sooner that we can realize that every American deserves um, their story to be told, A, but also to be involved in, in the conversation that is our community, we need to continue to have those stories. So for me, Marcus was, comes at a very important time. It was interesting in watching the rehearsal yesterday because mm. clearly your writing is so vibrant and, and poetic. Mm. And yet seeing you jump up on that stage, it was like watching a choreographer work. Mm. It's a nice combination. Oh, well, thank you. When, we were, when I was in grad school, I met a, a writer, a young writer. Um, he's actually older than me by a year, but he was at the Yale School of Drama. His name is Marcus Gardley. And he he's incredible. I think he's probably one of the best playwrights that I've ever met. And the reason why I'm bringing him up is because people liked to compare us, to talk about how very similar we were. And I couldn't see the similarity, save that we were both black and playwrights. I mean, I just <laughs> And the reason why is because Marcus is a poet. I mean, a true poet. I mean, an incredible poet. He, his poetry alone is gifted and incredible. And then when his poetry is inside of the work, it becomes something it's a joy to be able to have that kind of poetry in the mouth. I don't come from the same background as him. My poetry or the way in which I, I choose to speak or write comes from a very uh, dramatic place. It comes from the stage. I, I understand and am dramatic in the, in the sense of what the actor needs, the utility of the words, the actual usage and need of the words, not necessarily how they sound or, or look on the page. And that difference to me is just brought about simply because I'm an actor first or I was, a, or I was on the stage first and using words in the moment to prove the point, to get to the next 
next section to do whatever needed to be done. And the poetry that comes out of it is the poetry of necessity. It's interesting because I read your plays mm -hmm. and it was a very different experience from seeing them on the stage. The way it came alive for me on mm -hmm. the stage was it was really so compelling, which isn't to say it wasn't on the page, but it sure. just didn't have the same immediacy but urgency. And I think that's what's so interesting about your work is that it clearly is theater. For me, it's, it's about trusting that what I'm putting on the page, I'm getting from looking in the space. I mean, I, when I was working with Peter Brook very recently, we had a very funny conversation because <laughs> I said to him I was getting nervous about writing because whenever I, I wrote or whenever someone, especially when someone commissions me to do something, if I can't see how it is going to work in the space, if I can't see how the play is going to be formed, what set might look like, what the space might feel like, even if I can't see necessarily the set or see the props or the actors per se, I need to get an understanding of what is happening, the topography on the stage. How is a moment going to be enacted so that, um, so that I'm sitting in the audience at a certain distance, but I will feel something um, from that distance away? And I can't write unless I can see it that way. Otherwise, I think, I'll think to myself, oh, this is a piece of, uh, of a movie. Or, or this, is, um, this is something else. This is a story I'm telling myself. But it doesn't become a play until I can see it in the actual space. And he said something very funny to me. He said, then that means you're a playwright and not a novelist. And he said, more often than not, what happens is you get a lot of novelists who think they're playwrights, who like to write dialogue. And um, they write these things that are you know, novel-like, and then they hand it over to a director and say, hey, put it on the sp in the space. And... Because you already think out what the space can do, if a director ever says, I don't understand this moment, can you explain it to him? You can. And it's true. It's, I, I can. I can explain to you what I'd like. And then we can expand on the idea or do another idea. But we know that in the space it works somehow. And that's important, I think, because you know the only way we're going to get theater to remain <laughs> open for everyone is to continue to invite pieces that are made for the theater, made for the theatrics. That only can happen in the theater not only can happen in the theater, but happen in the theater in a dynamic way that they can't in other places. How did the brother-sister plays come into being? It began with the brother's size, correct? Uh, yeah, brother's size was written first, and then Red and Brown was written second. Brother's size, I definitely was experimenting. I was like, this is an experiment to write this story in a quotidian way using these tools. Go. And I sort of, it's an important story, I'm going to go, I told it. And there was a little, there was less sort of I don't know, what the word, there was less dreaming involved in putting the story together. It was like, this is how the story goes. That's how it goes. It was ordered and it was fashioned. I did it and sort of put it down. And then in the red and brown came because I, there were characters that I, this was one of the few times where I, was, I wasn't writing and thinking of the space per se. I just was writing about like, oh, and then this girl comes into the space and she says this, this, and this. I also have to tell you that when I was writing, I was, uh, it was like two clock in the morning in Oxford and I was jet lagged so I wasn't actually writing it oh this is a scene I'm gonna write I was write, I would write oh I'll write this love note to somebody and email it later but then while I'm writing this I'm also gonna write this other thing that's been in my mind and I wrote you know I would rewrite Shakespeare monologues because I was working on Shakespeare during the day I was there uh, studying Shakespeare eight to eight every day I would supposedly go to sleep but I would only I was jet lagged so I would go to sleep right at eight o'clock because my schedule was all off. And then I would wake up at 
two, and I was like, I can't get back to sleep, so I would stay up until about five, writing random things. So I kept putting them together, putting them together, and I eventually I was like, oh, oh, I'm writing a play. Uh, and that's how Red and Brown was born. I had like 45 pages of play that I had written and not really known that I was writing it. And then I sort of said, oh, I better do something with it. <laughs> and you saw the connection to the brother's size. Well, the same, char- same characters were speaking inside yeah. of it. They were, I mean, I think, at first, I, I guess I looked at it and, um, and realized that they reflected brother size in a way. But that's why the, when people call it a trilogy, it's not hard for me to call it a trilogy. It's just, I think it's a little, maybe inaccurate. Just a little bit. Only because tr- trilogies go, this is the first part of the story. This is the second part. Here's the third. These don't really do that. <laughs> they don't really go, here, I'm going to tell you more of the story in this one. It's actually like, I'm going to confuse you a little bit because I'm actually <laughs> not going to talk about that thing that we were talking about before. I'm talking about something totally different. There'll be people from that other thing in this, but they aren't. Act- we're not continuing that story. That story is kind of there. And if you want to see that, go see it. Great. And But if you want to talk about this, this is what we're talking about in this play. And um, in fact, we're all talking about it in a way that may confuse you. So the plays are connected, but they're not a trilogy as right. from reflect, point A to point B to point C. Sure, they reflect each other, they refract each other, sometimes they lie on each other. I mean, that's the thing about, for me, that's the important thing about the plays. They, they tell stories from different points of views, so the stories that they may reflect about the other plays, they tell it from that point of view, which I think each time stories are reflected or refracted from each other, they're told from the point of view of that character and and I think that's important and true to life. In the brother-sister plays, you use mythology. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you take the, those figures and it's put, boom, mm-hmm. in a <clears throat> housing project. Every play has mythology in it. Every play that I've ever written. And every play pretty much written has an archetype dating back Mythology, mythological stories from all cultures have those origin stories especially, are really just stories to try and put the world together. How, they're stories to explain how the world works. I'm not saying anything new, I think, about that. But what happens is over time we sort of think, oh, but this story is brand new. We've never heard about a woman killing her own kids or... We've never heard about a woman who defied the law to bury her brother. We've never heard about a story of a man who slept with his own mother and made, and had children. You know, we've never had heard these stories before. And then, you know, you sort of go, uh, <laughs> excuse me, these stories are older than us. And, you know, the written version may be, a, you know, an updated, translated version, but it's totally the same. And so in the brother-sister plays... In all plays, actually, but specifically in the brother sister plays, I try and use those archetypes to show how every day these stories still occur. And the specific portion of it is making them in housing projects or in urban inner city neighborhoods and in the South um, amongst black people. But I think once you do that, once you make them specific, they become universal in that it's like, oh, I can, I, I know something, or oh, I know that, that happened in my family, or I've seen this before. Those moments to me are important because they they make us human. They make us all go, oh yeah, that person may be black and in the South, but if I can relate to that story or I know that, that same archetype or I, oh yeah, I know that guy, I've met a guy like that, then we start to align ourselves with our uh, 
our sameness, as it were, rather than dividing ourselves with our differences. And so that's another way to make the theater important, is to make that communal act vibrant, to make you have to go, oh yeah, I know that feeling. Oh yeah, I have been there. When you think about your life 10 years ago, would you imagine mm -hmm. that you would be here now? Yeah, some of it. <laughs> some of it. I mean, so the part that, you know, still working in the theater is, is definitely something that was on my mind 10 years ago. I could imagine it. Whether or not it was actually going to happen was an act of faith. But I, I certainly thought or knew that this is what I want to do. I, there's a, a feeling that you get. In church, we say it's like a fire shut up in your bones, but I wouldn't describe it the same. But there is something that feels right. There's a match or a call or, or something that happens that the grooves fit correct. So I remember at 13, everything felt in line. And then I sort of was very uh, practical, but also very spiritual about it in, in that I was like, I recognized that the artist's path wasn't necessarily an easy one. And I certainly didn't want to be poor all my life. And when I say poor, I don't mean artist poor. I mean poor as in I didn't want to not be able to eat or pay rent and things like that, like I was at the current time. So I remember just saying to God, you've got to help me sustain this other stuff so I can do this artistic thing. And I think just like that. <laughs> and I was just like, you you got to help me out because I have no idea how to do all this stuff. But I, I know how to do this, and this is what I'll do, and I'll, and I'll make it work. But you've got to back me up or... Straighten me. the path. <laughs> yeah, lead me forward. And I remember just feeling this overwhelming sense of that's what's going to happen, and or that's the deal. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, okay, well, if that's the deal, then I'll do it. Tell me your your experience that made you decide it was theater that you wanted. I had the good fortune of always being somehow on the receiving end of the charity handed down to inner city schools, <laughs> which is somebody giving. 10 tickets to a school to see a play, or I think Alvin Ailey came through the South Florida area at one point and we were given tickets to see, you know, a part of the dance. I mean, all of those different experiences were afforded me and maybe they were afforded, they're afforded a lot of people. I don't think they're afforded enough, but for me, because I, I <laughs> my, my friends say I have a dangerous memory for details of experiences because I, I see these things and they sort of get etched in my mind and I can always bring them up and be like, oh, remember that time you said this really funny thing and it was like this and they were like, that happened 15 years ago. Why do you remember that with that much clarity? And I was like, oh, nobody else remembers it like that. <laughs> um, so those moments to me added up fairly early. The other thing about theater was that there was um, an amazing sense of community that I, I didn't have outside of it. I think my brother could vouch saying that when he played sports there was a there was a sense of community there that he got um, that was both a part of him being a part of a team being rooted for or even being uh, rooted against but there was a communal act in playing the game and for me I, I certainly didn't I didn't play sports and <laughs> I, I don't think I would have been good at it anyway. And I certainly uh, wasn't very close to a lot of kids in my in my middle school, and so when I when I, there was theater, when there was a moment of of being on the stage, there was a community there that I wasn't feeling before. And I and I just remember feeling like this isn't just important for me. I just realized that it was important for all of us to sort of have that moment, that feeling of community. And so that's what did it 
that feeling and it was in it was in piecemeal it wasn't all at once but it was like you you know you get enough of it and then I joined an improv troupe when I was about 15 well 14 because it was in 95 and it was an improv troupe that did preventative is that a word did I I didn't invent that did I preventative theater yeah it did theater that was preventative wonderful I like when I can talk. Um, <laughs> I, did, I did theater that it was um, it was prevention-based theater for drugs and um, HIV prevention, and it was around the Miami-Dade area locally first. But what changed about it was we started to do really avant-garde, and I say avant-garde only because we were using avant-garde techniques to tell these very gritty and real serious quotidian inner-city stories, um, which I don't think many people, especially in Miami, were doing, and especially at that age were doing. And I think we, we started to get really good at it. I think it was because of practice and diligence, but it was also because the need, the urgency was there. And I always tell, you know, young playwrights, younger playwrights, because whatever, I'm probably, every time I walk into a room full of playwrights, I'm still the youngest <laughs> normally. But every now and then, um, you'll get a group of students who say, well, what do you do when you start a play? And one of the first things is that the story is important to me. Because if it isn't important, if it's, if it isn't if it isn't if there isn't a need to tell it per se, then all of a sudden it becomes superfluous. Or uh, I had a teacher, an acting teacher, who used to call it uh, cake. There's bread theater and there's cake theater, and you want to make sure that if you are making a, a cake theater, that you recognize that it's cake. You know, it's got icing and it's good for you. But if you eat too much of it, your teeth will get rotten and you'll die. So you make it, you know, nice tart or something like that but for the most part you need bread theater you need it to to live and so I you want to make sure that the story you're telling is of need that you need to tell it that it's something that is on your heart or on your mind and you want to bring it forward and so that's what was happening in that improv troupe there were stories that we needed to say we need to talk about Um, sometimes we you know I remember we would do shows and, you know, we, got, we would get into this van, this white van that the rehabilitation center that we were working for provided, and we would drive around sometimes. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to Miami. Yeah, but I lived down there for it, a while. Oh, good. Then you know that it's like 45 minutes to everywhere. Mm-hmm. And we would drive to these halfway houses out in the middle of the Everglades or the Redlands. And we'd be in the van, and on the way, we'd just be talking and chatting and being like, okay, we're going to do this scene, and we're going to do that scene, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, we, and then we would get there, and we would do it, and the entire ride back would be dead silent because once we got in front of the people who we were talking to, that we couldn't be um, hidden. We had to go to a very vulnerable place. And then opening up that place started a dialogue between us and them about what they needed to say and what we needed to say about the nature of the world we lived in. I mean, we all had had experiences with drugs and alcohol regardless of where we were, yet we were in school when we were kids, and they were either addicts recovering or in detention centers or, you know, delinquents, quote-unquote. But at some point, there was a common bond made. There was a, I, you know, my first experiences of seeing drugs was actually from family. And that experience was almost a round table. We all sort of could identify with that, living in the inner city. It wasn't, you know, that the stories of there's this pusher on the corner. He's like, hey, man, want to try some? I was like, that, that actually isn't true for us in the inner city. It was more often than not a cousin or a mother or a father or an uncle or a brother right near us who was involved using or selling. And we got either introduced that way 
in a very familiar way and how to combat that kind of prevention. Like they weren't telling you in um, state education classes about how to say no when it's your family, you know, when it's something so close to home, when, it, when, when it's in your home when it's a part of your everyday life? How do you then say no to this person that you supposedly love and care about, um, or who loves and cares about you, who is saying, you know, if you wanna come up in this world, you need to push this a little on the corner so that we can have some food to eat. How do you say no to that? How do you get in someone's face and say, that's bad thing to do, don't do it? That form of judgmental thinking and, and working was so, well, it didn't work. So we had to come up with ways that uh, introduced the conversation and allowed us to work, work through with them options that didn't, weren't black and white, that, that said, okay, and in the world that we live in, we know that you can make money pushing drugs. You can, it's a truth. And if you're starving, it looks like a very good option. But here are some of the, the consequences from that. And here are some of the things that you could do outside of that. And here are the choices that are involved in that. And with those choices, from us, come no judgment. It's just we're here to offer a dialogue about the choice. Best of luck. <laughs> Literally, we all had to endure or make a choice. And I thank God that I made certain choices, but only before the grace of God go. I mean, there <laughs> sometimes even think today, I, I, remember, I remember every time I go home, I think to myself, I might have been a drug dealer had I not figured out that I, if I had not stumbled upon the right path here and there, that may be me. That could have been me in this last drug war, this last shootout, or this last. So I never get too excited or distant. All I need to do is go home one time or even think about home. And I just, I know there's so much work still to be done. And there's not enough money, not enough awards will ever change that connection that I have to finish that work. Uh, Morris said that you're interested in developing a classical theater in Miami. Uh, yeah, I am. I mean, I, I <laughs> this is a funny long story and I'll try to make it brief and less funny. One of the problems with living in Miami is that there is a huge, I feel like, brain drain for the city. A lot of its most talented and brightest natives, people who actually grew up there, leave. It's funny, if you go to Miami and you ask people where they're from, most people aren't from there. <laughs> um, and I was actually, I'm actually a third generation Miami. My grandmother was born there, my father was born there, my mother was born there, I was born there. And for me, it's important, though I'm doing a lot of great things elsewhere, go back there and to invigorate or to continue to add to that community what I can. And so one of the ideas is to create a theater company that does classical work in new and inventive ways for free in the park, in Bayfront Park, during the winter season. And so it would be something that, that would be free for the community and also help boost tourism. And then during the off-seasons, it would do more contemporary works and hold workshops for new writers and new artists in the area. There's no major regional theater there, no theater of that size and that capacity. And so the idea was to do that. And there was a foundation called the Knight Foundation who held a competition. They wanted us to, to present initiatives that would change the landscape of the arts in Miami. And of course, I, <laughs> I sort of sent this initiative. I wrote them like a thousand word proposal. And they liked the proposal and they asked to, you know, we need to do a more in-depth proposal. So I did another in-depth proposal. And then they wanted a budget. 
So I was like sitting up at like two o'clock in the morning doing this budget for this theater that didn't exist. And of course, you know, I came to the conclusion that in order to do everything that I wanted to do, I needed about $2 million. <laughs> and it was so funny. I have problems asking theaters for reimbursement checks for cabs. My friends were like, how are you asking for all this money? I was like, oh, because it's not for me. You know, I have no interest in taking this $2 million and like building me a house. But I do have interest in taking $2 million and then matching. It's a matching fund competition and matching it with some donors I had met and really creating a theater that was for free. The problem in Miami is, how are you gonna have a theater that's gonna be doing Hamlet, yeah? And Hamlet can run for hours long. <laughs> so you say, hey, people of Miami or in the Miami-Dade area, we're gonna be doing Hamlet tonight. This kind of depressing play about this guy who loses his father and spends like, you know, four hours trying to kill his uncle. Come see it. Come in out of this warm, beautiful weather inside a dark theater sit for a while and watch everybody die by the end of the play. It's a hard sell. <laughs> but if you say, hey, come see this play that may not be four hours because we'll get Peter Brook to come do his version, which is like two and a half hours, and it's outside in this amphitheater and we'll sell drinks and it's free and it's something you can do between now and going to the club or going out to party later on. And Come by, just check us out. And then you come and they, you see a beautiful play and it's right on the, on the bay. I mean, it's taking in all of the things that are interesting about Miami and making them work for Miami. And I thought it was a good idea. I think they thought it was a good idea too. But then the sort of economic turn, they were like, how are you gonna be able to match $2 million? I mean, you're not even an artistic director. You're like 28. How are you gonna do this? And I just sort of said, well, I'm ambitious. <laughs> There's a part of me that is grateful that it actually didn't happen because I really would have had to stop my life entirely to devote, devote it to that. But a part of me still really wants to do that and would have welcomed the challenge of saying, actually, I can't write plays right now. I have to go and raise the other $2 million for this theater. I had plans to build the offices and the rehearsal space in, the, in this old rec center in Overtown, which is the oldest black neighborhood in Miami, and make the art center free for the community, but also have an office there. So it would be this place where the community also had an art center that they could take company class and they could take dance and they could take theater classes and they could take speech and also watch rehearsals. And for me, that dream is nowhere near dead. I'm working on ways to build my name so that when next time I come back down, they won't hesitate so, so much to give me what I, what I need to do it. But it takes, I think, it takes that level of, of, of drive and dreaming to do it because it, it needs to happen it would benefit so many people so wonderfully. And it'd be a fun job to have before I retire. <laughs> I just imagine, you know, bringing in something from South America, some Augusto Boal theater piece, uh, Shakespeare piece, or an actual Greek tragedy from Greece, and seeing it play, you know, on the open air and, you know, serving Bacardi drinks while people watch it. I mean, it just sounds like a good day to me. It, <laughs> so, sounds, it sounds wonderful. No, oh, thanks. We'll see. You can come down when it happens. Oh, you bet I will, too. <laughs> thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. No, thank you. That was playwright and 2013 MacArthur Fellow, Terrell Alvin McCraney. Terrell has adapted and directed a 90-minute intense and highly praised production of Hamlet which he's brought to the Miami stage. He's following that up with Antony and Cleopatra, which he sets in Haiti. He considers both plays the first steps in creating a winter Shakespeare festival in Miami that speaks to a younger, underserved audience. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. 
excerpt from History of an Apology, from the album of the same name by Paul Rucker, used courtesy of Paul Rucker. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, the rutabaga queen herself, Katie, Texas. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.